to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Well, good morning. We, um, as Darren mentioned, are kind of in the bookended between the um, end of our series on Luke and not quite starting volume two of Luke's writing, the book of Acts. And we thought that it would be valuable this morning to, um, to do a couple of things in, in one sermon. Um, so this is probably not going to be a typical sermon. Uh, what I want to do... Uh, is um, uh, frame, I guess, how Luke uh, and thus how we are trying as a, as a church body to do theology. Uh, we have mentioned before that uh, we try and do theology narratively. That is to say, where, where we don't have a system that through the lens of which we look at Scripture... We attempt to let Scripture be the lens through which we formulate our theology. Does that make sense? Um, and, and that's challenging at times, especially when we're dealing with stories that are open to varying ways of reading. Um, so what I want to try and do this morning is, is walk you through a particular topic that is near and dear to Luke's heart, to Jesus' heart, as a way of demonstrating how, we're, how, we, how we try and think about the text theologically, narratively, but then also to say, what is this challenging us with? What is this inviting us into? Um, and particularly this morning, when we do narrative theology, we're going to focus on an assumption, that is that the Holy Spirit of God has inspired, has, got, has breathed into Luke as an author, to write these stories and not other stories. To write these stories in these specific ways. John makes it clear that if uh, everything that Jesus wrote or did and said was written down, the world couldn't contain the books that would, would carry that content, right? So, so why did the Spirit choose these stories and not the majority of other stories? And why does he tell them in the ways that he tells them? So we're going to try and, and play around with that a little bit uh, this morning. Uh, and particularly to try and get a handle on Jesus' heart for a, um, uh, uh, the use of power. The use of power. Remember, Darren, in his introduction to the Gospel of Luke, suggested that one of Luke's major um, contributions as we think about this is how does the power of the kingdom of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, respond to, deal with, when in confrontation to the power of imperial Rome? So you have these tensions, political power, military power, positional power. The, the, the Caesars, the, the, the Pilots, the Herods, right? Uh, the soldiers, the Pharisees, the people who have positions that put them in, in power and how they use their power versus Jesus who wants to model a different way in which power can be used specifically to empower others, much in the way of God in the creation of the world. 
So you see this, this tension, this collision of powers, if you will, and particularly then, how does power um, come to the weakest, the poorest, the disenfranchised among us? So we're going to look particularly through the lens of Luke at how Jesus treats women this morning. Why? Because uh, in first century Palestinian Judaism, women were non-persons for the most part. There were a few exceptions, and in some particular cases, they were persons only by relation to a man. A daughter, or a wife, or a mother. And apart from those defining relationships, notice each of them based on connection. They were essentially non-persons without power in the culture and society. In fact, there is a group of Pharisees that prayed one of the three blessings, or all three of the blessings every morning. I thank you, God, that I am not born a Gentile, that I am not born a dog, that I am not born a woman. So in a culture in which women were regarded as non-persons, how does Jesus treat them? And so the ways of story help us to get a handle on this. Now, why are we doing this? First of all, because we have um, a, a culture that still has non-persons in it. Right? Some, in fact, women. Uh, perhaps not in North America so much, but other parts of the world in which women are marginalized to the edges of society, even though in many cases they are the economic engine of the society, they are nonetheless non-persons except in relation to men. Husbands, sons, fathers. What happens when the gospel comes into contact with that reality? Then the other piece of this is to recognize that it is not just women who are non-persons in cultures and societies. So as we listen through this, if you can put, kind of filter this, translate this with me, who are the non-persons in our culture? Who are the marginalized? Who are the ones on the edges? Who are the ones on the outside? Is it, is it perhaps the disabled? Is it developmentally challenged? Is it the homeless? Is it the poor? Or is it even perhaps in some church environments, equality except defined differently for some rather than others? Do, do, do you see what we're after here? So we're just going to, this is going to be probably not all that inspirational but I'm hopeful to give you some content so that you can uh, start to think through uh, how this might work itself out as you learn power. Because you all have power. How do you use it? Do you use it out of weakness to manipulate? Do you use it in strength to dominate? Or do you use it in the image of God to elevate, to lift? How do you use the power God has given you? Do you see? So this is what I'm going to invite you to. Again, whenever we're looking at this text of Scripture, we need to remember that not one word of it was written to or for you. Everybody okay with that? It was all written for people 2,000 years ago or, or, or more. So before we understand what it means for us, we have to understand what it meant for them. This is just a basic rule 
of exegesis. That is to read the, the meaning of a text out of it rather than eisegesis, which is to read the meaning of a text into it. Having a meaning in mind and finding it in the text is different than having no meaning in mind and reading it out of the text. And that's what we're attempting to do here. And in that case, we need to know first century Palestinian Judaism, even though there were exceptions in Roman culture based on wealth and so on and so forth, for the most part, women were not highly regarded. They had no voice. They had no vote. Their, their, their uh, testimony was not admissible in courts of law. Uh, they were um, ineligible for worship, uh, significant chunks of their, their life. And so this is, the, this is the, the group of people that we want to look at. So we're going to start uh, looking at, this, uh, at the birth narratives. We're just going to be blitzing through chunks of Scripture this morning, and I'm just going to kind of point things over. So it's kind of a flyover and look at that, look at that, look at that. Just on your left side is, is uh, Crater Lake. Um, look down and you'll see it. Uh, but anyway, uh, so... We begin with the birth narratives. Uh, so, so notice here, one of the ways that Luke does this is contrasting how men respond to angelic visitation versus how women do. So here's Zechariah, who will be the father of John the Baptist, asking the angel, how can I be sure of this? A statement of doubt. In contrast, Mary, when the angel comes with even more remarkable news to her, does not ask, how can I be sure, but how will it be? I can't figure this out, I'm a virgin. Her statement is an acceptance of the truth of what he is saying. She doesn't need proof of it. She is curious as to how this is going to happen, however. So a statement of unbelief versus a statement of belief and faith. Then he goes on and says, it, she goes on and says at the end of that statement, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. And so Mary is the first one who models for us, and please notice with me on this, an acceptance without understanding. A willingness to walk in obedience and submission without clarity of all of the details. This is going to become one of the hallmarks of this journey through the Gospel of Luke. All right? As we go through the birth narratives, uh, where, where, where women, please notice when she goes uh, uh, to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, next slide, uh, Mary heard Mary's greeting. The baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the first person, first person in the book of Luke described as being filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's a woman who is filled with the Holy Spirit first. This is not insignificant. Remember, Luke could have chosen numerous other stories. These are the stories the Holy Spirit inspired him to choose and tell in specific ways. So we want to pay attention to what he says and what he doesn't say. And in this particular instance, he invites us into a conversation in which women particularly are getting it in a way that the men who ought to be getting it don't. It's not a denigration of men. It's an elevation of women. The next thing he goes on and we pick it up uh, it, where Mary now serves later on in chapter 1, uh, having, having recognized with that greeting of Elizabeth that the baby growing in her has prophetic presence. She interprets her pregnancy as a prophetess does. This is really important because, again, for Luke, 
Who is it that gives prophecy? It's a person who is filled with the Spirit, who speaks and interprets events in the light of the work of God. And she says, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has been mindful of the humble uh, state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thought. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel. He has remembered to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as He said to our fathers. So notice what Mary is doing here, she recognizes in the coming of the Spirit to her and the birth of the baby which she is now carrying, the entire society will be turned right side up. And women are the ones who get the gospel first. Now again, this is not to put down men in their hearing of it, but, but to elevate, to bring to the same level, if you will, women who get it. So, and then he goes on, and later on, uh, brings baby Jesus, remember, eight days in, to be uh, consecrated and to do the rites of purification. There is in that temple scene, remember we talked about this way back at the beginning, a prophet named Simeon who, who, who prophesies to Mary that uh, the baby born to her is in fact Messiah, that he will bring a sword, there will be a division, it will be a, 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 a parenting of pain that she has. Uh, but notice... Luke includes in that birth narrative a story of another prophet, but now a woman, who comes to make this declaration. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. By the way, this is going to become a huge theme for Luke. Who is it that hangs in there? Who is it that stays focused? Who is it that continues to show up in God's presence when it appears that God doesn't show up? Who is it that is faithful? Inevitably, through the Gospel of Luke, it is women who do, do that. And that's an important part of the, of the lesson. So here she is. She's never left the temple, worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment, after Simeon's declaration, she also gives thanks to God, speaks about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So, or Jerusalem, rather. So again, Anna uh, interprets the coming of Jesus in the same way that Simeon does, but with a feminine voice. So again, Luke is inviting us into this parallel uh, declaration. Simeon got it right. Anna gets it right. We need both voices in the choir of prophetic pronouncement, right? Both voices. How many of you know that some people will hear the voice of a woman before they'll hear the voice of a man? Luke knows this. Jesus knows this. So as he goes along on his mission, one of the things that we become aware of, and I don't have time to um, uh, float through all of these passages, uh, but is the number of women that Jesus heals. And 
we who are so used to the story might say, well, of course, they were there. No, you don't understand. This is a culture in which the story of women was simply not told. So when Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, elevates the healing of women, we ought to pay attention to that. He is saying to us, Jesus is embracing women as equal partners of the kingdom as it comes. And please notice, implicit in that is the invitation that we do so also. So we hear and read, we're not going to look at the stories, but we read the story of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, one of the first public miracles that Jesus did. Uh, then we have the story of the healing of Jairus' daughter, a 12-year-old girl. Then we have the story of the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. She has been afflicted for 12 years. Luke parallels those stories to let us know that in, in essence, they're the same kind of thing that God validates those who have been invalidated and brings them to, to place. But notice particularly that Jesus is not just interested in positional women. That is to say, women who have place in the, in the culture or place in the society. Um, people who have uh, notoriety. People who are known uh, by virtue of their, their positions. He doesn't just embrace the, 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 the noble, the, the, the strong. The, the high, the, the, the powerful. He also embraces the children, and particularly those who are even below the children in the society, those who are marginalized, set aside, taken out, and set out with the trash. And this is the story here in Luke chapter 7 of a woman who starred in porn videos in the first century. Not really, but this is the reputation Notice what happens. One of the Pharisees, a man, Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table, when a woman who had lived a sinful life, that's euphemistic for what I just described. She was an immoral woman. Right? Um, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she came and brought an alabaster jar of perfume, one of the tools of her trade, and she brought and stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Please notice her actions of worship are not rejected by Jesus. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. One wonders how Simon knows what kind of woman she is, but we'll leave that for another sermon. That she is a sinner that she ought not be here, that she has no place here, that she has no purpose here. She is not only not welcome, she is rejected. Notice Jesus' response. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 days' wages, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, 
Which of them will love him more? Now, remember, Simon is a Pharisee. So he is used to asking questions. He is used to being the examiner. In fact, that's why he brought Jesus to dinner in the first place. He's trying to find out where Jesus fits. So when Jesus turns the tables on him and acts as the rabbi he is, asking Simon this question, Simon is starting to get perhaps a little uncomfortable. He knows that something's going down here. But he's not quite sure, I don't think, what it is. He senses a trap, but he can't, for the life of him, figure out what the trap is. So Jesus says, tell me which one loved more. And Simon kind of stabs in the dark and says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled? And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. And Simon said, yes, I did. Simon has got this, okay, I got out of that one, right? Then he goes on and says, do you see this woman? That's a loaded question, isn't it? Every male eye at that dinner party had seen that woman and did not view her as person. Do you see this Woman? Now notice the contrast that Jesus is going to draw. Remember that hospitality is one of the highest values in first century Palestinian Judaism. When I came to your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head in honor of me, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then notice this. Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests missed the point entirely. Notice their theological hiding. Who is this who forgives sins? Not looking in the mirror and seeing who in that room needed forgiveness. Every one of them They hide behind their theological prognostications. Who is this that forgives sins? And Jesus does not dignify their question with an answer. Instead, can you back up one slide with me? Look at that first line. Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon. She is looking, he is looking at her. He is validating her even while he's speaking to Simon. All right? So now go ahead, Brennan. Thank you. Your sins are forgiven. Who is this forgive sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Who received forgiveness that day? 
who needed to. Right? Isn't that amazing? So what is he doing here? He's just saying even women can be forgiven. In the kingdom, that's big news. Women were viewed as the vehicle through which temptation came. They were viewed through misexegesis of Genesis chapter 3 as the problem. And Jesus is here saying, oh no, no, no. Oh no, no, no. Do you see this woman? Who was the only man in the room who saw her as she was? See what Luke is doing here in the telling of the story. He invites us now to stop looking at people with the labels we put on them and start looking at them as persons worthy of the forgiveness of a loving Savior. He then goes on, uh, and, and in chapter 8, we get another snapshot of a, of, of a, of a, of a story. So after this, Jesus is traveling about from one town to another, village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. And then there was Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. They called him Harold in the first service. I don't know what happened there. Anyway, Herod's household, Susanna, many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Did you catch what's going on there? Jesus did not just have 12 disciples. He had multiple disciples, among whom were women, and who was paying the bill for their missionary enterprise in in the Galilee and throughout the mission. It was the women. High-class noblewoman who was in, in Herod's court, the king of the land. She was a disciple of Jesus, as well as Mary Magdalene, the bottom of whatever pile you can find, out of whom seven demons had been cast, and everybody in between. Luke cites the names of these women because the church will recognize their names and will recognize them as having place in the church. They are viewed as disciples of Christ, not simply followers at distance. This is important. Remember that for Luke, that 12 disciples is not limiting discipleship to 12. The reason he chooses 12, narrative theology again, is to link the mission of Christ to the history of Israel with its 12 tribes. That's why there's 12 apostles, not because that's the only number there were. In fact, there were multiple, Luke will later on tell us, 120 to 500 that were a part of the core group, and among them were women. So then we go on. Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her parents perhaps had died, and she was the inheritor. So she was a rare woman in that culture. She had her own home. She opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, and notice Mary's posture. She sat at the Lord's feet, listening
Are we there now? How about that? I don't know. Okay, so uh, Martha, okay, she had a sister called Mary, but who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted, the Greek says, by her much service. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care? I love it when people come to Jesus with that question. Don't we? Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? We're just going to leave it there for one second. I want you to notice here that Mary has assumed the posture of a disciple, a learner. When she says she was, when the text says that she was sitting at Jesus' feet, it's not simply a description of her physical location in the room vis-a-vis Jesus. It is a description of her posture to him, learner to rabbi. She was sitting in the position of a learner, like any of the other men in the room. She was being discipled by Jesus. That's what that text is saying. She has place at the feet of Jesus. Martha is embarrassed for her sister. This is not the place of women in that culture. How can I rescue my sister from social embarrassment? And so she comes to Jesus, distracted from her service of Jesus by Mary's service of Jesus and says to him, don't you care? Now, we don't have any little emoticons in Greek. It would be really helpful to see what happened in between that question mark and her next statement, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice to have a little snapshot where we could see Jesus' response to her question. Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? What's the only possible response Jesus could have given her that would lead to the next statement? Of course I care. My guess is he didn't have time to get the words out because Martha is on a tear. Right? So don't you care? Jesus nods and she says, then tell her to help me. Notice Jesus' response, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, it will not be taken away from her. Now please, often when this is taught, we hear Jesus saying, Martha, you've got it wrong and Mary's got it right. You need to be more like her. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, mind your own business. What was Martha distracted from? Or by, rather. She was distracted from her service of Jesus by somebody else's service of Jesus. Mary has chosen what is best for her right now. If you will do what is best for you right now, we'll be fine. Because the better part for Martha was not to be Mary. The better part for Martha was to be Martha. How many of you all know somebody needs to make lunch? 
This is, this isn't a, he's not saying be like her. He's saying be like you. He's validating both of their offerings of hospitality. Does that make sense? This is important because we have ideas that there are certain kinds of positions that Jesus approves or validates, certain kinds of positions, certain kinds of women, certain kinds of service that Jesus... No. Both are valid. If sitting is your service, then sit. If serving is your service, then serve. Not one's better than the other. And he invites us into that same pattern. So Mary is depicted here as a learner. Um, we didn't have time for it, but do you remember in Luke chapter 15, the, story, the three stories of lost and found, remember? It's a story of the prodigal God, the shepherd who goes and looks for the sheep that is lost, or the father that awaits the lost son. But who is he in the middle story? He is a woman who loses a coin. That's God. Like a woman who loses a piece of her dowry and scours the house until she finds it. That's what our God is like. That is not for nothing that Jesus tells that parable. Or if we go on in, in um, the 18th chapter, I don't have this cited either, but it's a, a woman who is the primary model of the prayer. What does she do? She doesn't quit. She doesn't give up. Even though injustice has shut her down, she keeps banging on the door of the unjust judge until he finally gives her what he, she wants so that she'll go away and leave him alone. And Jesus is not commending the unjust judge, nor is he saying God is like an unjust judge. He's saying, guys, write this down. She got it right. Learn a lesson from this lady. Show up even when it appears your prayers are not being answered. Because he ends this teaching on prayer with this statement. When the Son of Man comes, will there be anybody who has been faithful? And the short answer from this parable is, Jesus, you can count on the women. Because they're going to be the ones who hold faith to the end. And please notice how this works itself out. As we move to the crucifixion scene... Uh, this next text says a large number of people followed him, including women who had mourned. Please notice, women were viewed as delicate. But where are they on the day of crucifixion? They're right in there with the horror of what was happening. All those who knew him, including women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Luke is making a very subtle little point, but it's worthwhile. These women were not there to celebrate Passover. They were there having followed Jesus 250 miles south from their hometown in Galilee. They were, in other words, his disciples. Please notice, where were the men? Again, Luke is not denigrating men. He's just highlighting women and inviting us to see them at the cross. And in fact, in one particular scene, the only ones left at the cross, the men having fled. The women came with Jesus from Galilee, followed Joseph, saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. They were doing women's 
work. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So then early... uh, Yeah, sorry, go ahead. On the first day of the week then, this is where Rob Bell had us here a couple of weeks ago, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. But they found the tomb, rolled away. From, found the stone, rather, rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them in their fright. The women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember, he told you. While he was still with you in the Galilee, this Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Notice what happens next. They came back from the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven, to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. They had no credibility even with their fellow disciples who were the first witnesses to the resurrection. Who were the first witnesses to the Incarnation? Luke is not just telling us this because it happened. He's telling us this because it's important that we not marginalize the witness of anyone in the telling of the story. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. If he just listened to the women, he would know. Now, this is where our our flyover is going to end. I told you this wasn't very inspirational. (laughs) Cool. But it is invitational, isn't it? Because again, Luke is not saying, men, you stupid idiots. He's just saying, men, make room at the table. Remember that Luke is the narrative theologian who informs Paul's theology. Remember the great Apostle Paul? Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, the writer of half of the New Testament. Where did he get his theology of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus? From Luke, his traveling companion. This would have informed Paul's theology. And it informs, in fact, his theology relative specifically to the marginalized, relative specifically to the outsider. Luke was a Gentile. So what does Paul write finally when he gets down to thinking about this in Galatians? In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. The ground is level 
at the foot of the cross. Now, what does this say to us? I asked you to think as we were working through this, how it is that you plan to handle your positional power, the power you have because you are a person of wealth, the power you have because of your gender, the power you have because of your position at work, the power you have because of your role or place in your family system, the power you have because of your position. And so how do you plan to use that power? If we really want the kingdom to come in Long Beach as it is in heaven, we need to find a way to empower the marginalized, to bring to the center those who are at the edges, to give place and validity to those who have no voice of their own, to give them voice like Luke does with the disenfranchised non-persons in their culture, in their society. What does that mean for you? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that every one of you, every one of us, has power. The question is, how are you going to use it? What are you going to do with it? Are we going to follow the model of Jesus and empower the disempowered among us? Make way for them. Give them place and voice. That would be my invitation if it's the kingdom of God you want to come. Let's pray. Lord, as we sit with this um, passage of Scripture, or these passages of Scripture, we're aware, oh Lord, at how um, radical you were in your culture and in your society. It's pretty amazing to see how you were willing to go head-to-head against the structures of power that you could have used for your own advantage and instead brought the kingdom to bear through the power of sacrifice instead. We want to be your disciples. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us, whether it's with, with women or children or poor or homeless or developmentally disabled, that we find ways to bring them to the table to hear their voice. If, those, if we are in a position to do that, please help us to do that. I pray, O oh God, that if we are those people who feel marginalized and set aside, that we will sense your lifting of us, your giving us a voice, help us to learn the lessons of these women and maintain faithfulness in prayer, faithfulness in in vigil, faithfulness, in pursuit of the crucified and risen Christ. To bear witness through His empowerment of us. Not simply so that now that we are in positions, we can dominate others, but so that we are in positions to elevate others. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Just going to invite you to sit for just a moment in the stillness. Just ask Jesus to bring to mind someone or some situation. In which you perhaps will have opportunity this week to lift somebody to empower someone, to lend to someone.
to give place to someone. To have courage then to do that. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.